Well, good morning, New Day. Morning. So good to see you guys. Thanks so much for being here today. A big thank you to everyone who's tuned in online. I don't care how you're joining us. I'm just so glad that you're here. For those of you who are new to our church right now, as a church, we're studying through the gospel of Matthew. We've been studying it one little section at a time, and that's brought us to the section we're covering today, which is Matthew chapter 18, verses 5 to 9, where Jesus teaches us about the causes of sin. The causes of sin. Maybe like me, as a kid, for a science project at school, you made one of those erupting volcanoes. You know what I'm talking about? The erupting volcano. How many of you made an erupting volcano? Yeah, handful of you. Okay, this is great. If you, if you did that, you may recall that first you go ahead and you take that volcano and you kind of like create it using like an earth tone clay and you got to like stick your finger in the top or if you were an overachiever and made one this big, you got to find another way to make the hole in the volcano. But however big you decided to make it, once you kind of created that with the clay, then you take like a couple teaspoons or if you want to go crazy, a couple tablespoons of baking soda and you put it inside the volcano and there it sits undisturbed until everyone else in the class has shared about their science project and then it's your turn and now with a little gleam in your eye and a smile on your face because you know what's about to happen you take some vinegar and you pour it down the mouth of the volcano and when that vinegar hits that baking soda there's this chemical reaction that causes an eruption and stuff just kind of shoots out the top and goes everywhere, much to your classmates' delight because they, like you, also enjoy, at that age, making a big mess everywhere, okay? And now, because it's a science class, you have the daunting task of trying to explain the cause of that chemical reaction. And so they give to elementary school students the task of explaining this, okay? And so it's a really fun little experiment, and it's a fun uh, little assignment uh, if you've never done it. Well, I bring this up because in my science class, I had to explain the cause of a chemical reaction. And in the passage that we're studying today, this is what Jesus is doing. He's explaining the cause of something. And as I've already mentioned today in our text, he explains the causes of sin. Now here's the deal. For those of us who are disciples of Jesus, like we love Jesus, we know he died on the cross for us, and as like an expression of love towards him, we desire to live a life of obedience and to honor him. We, we want to live this life of holiness. And though that's the desire of our heart, sometimes the reality of our everyday life looks a little different than the desire of our heart. And this is confusing because in Romans chapter 6, the apostle Paul says that we are dead not just to the penalty of sin, he says we're also dead to the power of sin. But then you're all, okay, this is great. I'm dead to sin. I'm just going to live in holiness. I'm never going to sin again. This is going to be awesome. I'm going to honor my Lord with my holiness. And then you find yourself sinning. And it makes you go back and continue reading the rest of Romans. And when you do that, right after Romans 6, guess what's next? Romans 7. And guess what the apostle Paul 
one of the holiest people on the face of the earth besides Jesus himself, says in Romans 7. He says, oh my goodness, the good that I want to do, this is the thing I don't do. And then the evil that I want to avoid doing, this is the very thing I keep falling into. Who is going to rescue me from this body of death? And if you were here for us for the Righteousness of God teaching series where we studied through the book of Romans, you you learned that what Paul was saying is he was lamenting the reality that even though he's a Christian, he falls with disturbing frequency into sin. And I think the honest believer would say, Paul, I can relate. I wish I couldn't, but I can And the question begs, why is this the case? If we've been freed from sin's penalty and from its power, then why do we so often fall into sin? Well, friends, that's the very question that Jesus helps us to answer from a biblical viewpoint today in Matthew chapter 18, verses 5 to 9. And fortunately for us, Jesus goes way beyond helping us to understand why we fall into sin Thank God for us, he also moves on to explain what we can do as to not fall into sin. So he says, here's the problem, and here's what you can do about it. So I hope you'll tune in and pay attention to this super practical lesson from Jesus on the causes of sin. Here we go. The first thing that Jesus lists that can lead us into sin, surprisingly and sadly, is the influence of our fellow believer the influence of our fellow believer. Uh, We see this in verses five to six where Jesus says this, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. (laughs) So much for fluffy Jesus in the painting, you know, you know, no, no, uh -uh. this is fierce Jesus. This is fierce, Jesus. Don't cause your fellow brother in Christ to sin unless you have a millstone tied around your neck and be thrown into the heart of the sea. This is serious, serious stuff. Jesus here is in the apostle Peter's house and he's picked up one of Peter's children and he's holding them in his arms as an object lesson. The child of Peter represents the child of God. And so Jesus speaks to his disciples who are believers about this child who represents the children of God. So we know in the passage that Jesus is speaking about when one believer causes another believer to sin. It's tragic, it's unfortunate, but this is the very thing that sometimes happens. Now you might be wondering, I've never thought of that before. How does a Christian lead another Christian into sin? And I'm sure there's a near limitless list of things we could go over, uh, but I've kind of gone through all the material and sorted it into uh, four primary ways that this happens. So let's go through them. Number one, a Christian can lead another Christian into sin by what we'll call direct solicitation. If you remember in the Garden of Eden, Eve ate the forbidden fruit and then she gave some to her husband and he ate it too. This was Eve saying, I've just sinned. Would you like to join me in my sin? Direct solicitation. And this sometimes is what happens. Uh, We got young people in the front row. Maybe young people, you get in trouble and did something wrong. And you and your sibling say to each other, let's lie to escape the trouble that we know we're going to get into if mom and dad find out about. Well, that's a direct solicitation to sin. Maybe some of you are dating 
You're both believers, yet one of you is pressuring the other into getting into bed prior to that wedding ceremony. That is a direct solicitation into sin. Likewise, if we make a social media post that's intended to brag about our new outfit, about our new home, about our new car, about our new whatever, if the intention is to say to the world, look at what I got that maybe you don't have, then you have directly solicited another believer who's likely watching that post, seeing that post, reading that post into sin because now they're envious, now they're jealous, now they're filled with covetousness. So direct solicitation into sin is one of the ways that a believer can entice another believer into sin. Number two, this can also be done by what we'll call setting a bad example. Not only by direct solicitation, but we can also uh, encourage other believers to step into sin uh, through setting a bad example. We read in 1 Kings chapter 16 of the sinful example of Jeroboam. He was one of the kings of Israel after the uh, kingdom was divided. He was the first king of the uh, northern nation of Israel after the kingdom was divided. And he, through his bad example, practiced idolatry. And because he was the leader and he practiced idolatry, it led many of the citizens of his nation to also go ahead and practice idolatry. So it's so important that we set a good example if we're in leadership. So for those of us who are parents, guess what? We're in leadership over our kids. They will do what they see us do more than they will do what we say. More is caught than taught. So if we use foul language, that encourages them and gives them license to use that same language. If we lie or are dishonest, then it encourages them and gives them license to do the same. Or maybe some of you who are here uh, in leadership at New Day, the same goes for that uh, group of volunteers that you lead or that small group that you're over. In setting the wrong example, we can encourage other believers to sin. Number three, the third way a believer can lead another believer into sin is by tolerating ungodly influences. In the book of Revelation, the leaders of the church of Pergamum, and the leaders of the church of Thyatira were indicted by the Lord for allowing ungodly influences to exist in the church. They were expected to address it and shut it down, but instead they allowed it. And in allowing ungodly influences within the church, there were other members in the church who then were led into sin by the corrupting ungodly influence that the church leaders allowed to remain in the church. This kind of reminds me, a few years back, we had someone in our church, very involved, was on a serving team, led small groups, all this stuff, and sadly got caught up in open, outright, blatant, unrepentant sin. Of course, we confronted it. But after many attempts to try to get this person to repent, when they refused, they were uninvited to continue attending our church. Say, oh, wow, that's harsh. Don't you care about that person? Oh, we care about any one individual. Believe me, we do. But we can never prioritize that one individual over everyone else. Because as the Apostle Paul puts it, a little bit of leaven leavens the whole lump. When you've got an ungodly influence within the church, you've got to treat it like a cancer because that's exactly what it is. And cancer needs to be cut out and removed. So we're not to tolerate ungodly influences. 
And this, of course, doesn't just have application for pastors in a church. Uh, again, parents are an easy example to use. Parents, have you allowed your child to maintain an ungodly friendship? Hey, newsflash parents, we are an authority by God over our children. When they're 18 plus, they get to make those decisions. Until that time comes, we help our children to make good decisions, knowing that they're young and foolish and might not be making that good decision on their own. So are you allowing an ungodly influence by allowing your kids to remain friends and spend time with and have sleepovers with ungodly influences? Likewise, many of us nowadays are very quick to provide our kids with one of these. And unfortunately for many kids, the only thing it does is serve to create a, a, a gaming addiction or perhaps an addiction to pornography, which they access online. And if we have introduced an ungodly influence into our children's life, we got to do something to make sure that this device is safe. And if it's not, and we don't have an ability to keep it safe, that might be something we need to go ahead and remove from our child's life, lest we tolerate an ungodly influence. Again, same goes for those of you in leadership here at our church, in your small group, if you're a team lead uh, over the people that you serve. Is there an ungodly influence that you're tolerating? We got to remember the Apostle Paul's words, a little bit of leaven leavens the whole lump. Number four. The fourth way that a believer can lead another believer into sin is by carelessly exercising freedom. Carelessly exercising freedom. The Apostle Paul in Romans 14 instructs the believers at the church in Rome, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in your brother's way. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else that will cause your brother, meaning your brother in Christ, to fall, which means to sin. Since he used the example of alcohol consumption, I'll go ahead and build on the example that he's already provided. The Bible's very clear that believers uh, have the Christian freedom to consume alcohol in moderation. But the Bible's equally clear that if you're in mixed company with other believers and you don't know where they stand and you don't know what struggles they might have, it is better for you to refrain from indulging and exercising the freedom that you have to drink in moderation for the benefit and for the sake of the person in the group who might be a recovering alcoholic and might be led astray by the exercise of your freedom. Paul says, so I don't care what the issue, uh, drinking wine, eating meat that's been sacrificed to idols, whatever it is, if me exercising my Christian freedom would ever cause another believer to sin, then I am going to refrain from exercising my freedom. That doesn't mean he might not have gone home and enjoyed a, a glass of wine in moderation. Doesn't mean that he might have not gone home and eaten some meat sacrificed to an idol. Again, he had the freedom but he wouldn't exercise it in the presence of another believer that might be led astray by his exercise of that freedom. So friends, we could probably go on and on, but I think you get it. There are many different ways that believers can lead and cause other believers to step into sin. And if you're a disciple of Jesus, this is something that you will want to be very careful to avoid doing, and here's why. Let's go back to verse 6 real quick. Jesus said, For the one who causes another believer to sin in any of these ways, or in some other way not mentioned, he says it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. 
Friends, the Romans typically used crucifixion as the means of capital punishment. But do you know that crucifixion wasn't the only means of capital punishment in Rome? They also had something, death by drowning. Let's pretend they were out at sea and you had an insurrectionist crew member, you know, leading a mutiny on the bounty kind of thing going on. And uh, they might have to go ahead and uh, exact justice right there on the ship at the sea. And so sometimes they would tie that heavy object around the neck of the criminal, uh, of the person who was rebelling, and they would drown them. And that large object would carry their neck down to the bottom of the ocean. Now listen, the millstone that Jesus is referring to here, it's a very large stone used to crush grain into flour. As you can see, the donkey walks in circles, causing the stone to go round and round, crushing the grain as it goes. Now, can you imagine having a millstone tied around your neck that's that size? There's actually one at Forest Park. I saw it on uh, Friday or Saturday when I went there with the family. There's this huge millstone they've turned into a seat. And I was just picturing that thing being wrapped around my neck and me being thrown over the, you know, the ship. And I was like, whoa, this is serious stuff. Well, friends, get what Jesus says here. He says, now, if you, as a believer, are guilty of leading another believer into sin then that kind of punishment, having a millstone tied around your neck and being thrown to the bottom of the ocean, that would be a preferable punishment as compared to the way in which I will discipline you if you as a believer cause another believer to sin. You know, when we have difficulties or challenges or adversity in our life as Christians, we are all too often quick to say, it's the devil. We turn to a friend in our small group and we say, can you just pray for me? I'm just being attacked right now. Satan's coming against me. Would you pray for me? And we always, almost always attribute anything bad that happens uh, in our life to the work of Satan. But friends, what if it's the work of the Lord? Take a look with me at what the Old Testament character named Solomon told his son in Proverbs 3. He says, my child, don't reject the Lord's discipline and don't be upset when he corrects you. For the Lord corrects those he loves just as a father corrects a child in whom he delights. He says, you know how a father will give a spanking to his child because he loves him and wants to steer him away from the wrong path? Well, in the same way, God doles out heavenly spankings, if you will to his children because he loves them and wants to steer them off of the wrong path, the broad path that leads to destruction. And he wants to get us back on the straight and narrow path that leads to eternal life. So sometimes the difficulty, the challenge, the adversity, the hardship, it's not Satan, it's the Lord. And what Jesus is promising here is discipline for the believer who would dare to lead another believer into sin. So friends, understand this is serious, serious stuff. What we should take from the capital punishment illustration is that we won't just be disciplined, uh, period. We will be disciplined severely because Jesus is saying it's a crime against heaven for one believer to lead another believer into sin. So friends, we want to be careful that, that whether by direct solicitation or by setting a bad example or by tolerating a corrupting influence or by carelessly exercising our Christian freedom, we want to be careful that in doing these things, we don't lead other believers into sin. So God help us. Amen. All right, moving on. First, we saw that the first way that we can be led into sin is by the influence of our fellow believer. 
Well, as we keep studying our text, we come across a second way that we are led into sin, which is by not just the influence of our fellow believer, but secondly, the influence of our ungodly world. And we see this in verse 7 where Jesus says this, uh, Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary, meaning on this side of eternity, it's inevitable that temptations will come. But Jesus says, Woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. Now, when Jesus says, woe here, woe to the world, woe to the one by whom the temptation comes, woe is a pronouncement of judgment. So Jesus is pronouncing judgment over uh, all the people, ungodly people in the world who would lead others into temptation and sin. Jesus says, my fierce judgment is coming on all such people. Now, friends, understand this is a future judgment. Jesus talked about it back in Matthew chapter 13 when he said this, just as weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. At that time, the Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Friends, It should bring great joy to our hearts to remember that one day we're going to live in a kingdom, the kingdom of heaven that will be devoid of all tempting influences. Because when Jesus comes to overthrow Satan, the leader of the kingdom of this earth, to establish his own kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, he's going to remove all sources of ungodly influence in the whole world. And how awesome that's going to be. But unfortunately, that is a future reality. It's not one that you and I get to enjoy now. Right now, Satan is the ruler, the prince, Jesus calls him, of this age. He's the God of this age, according to the apostle Paul, and he is leading the kingdom of earth. God originally intended that mankind would rule over the earth, but when Adam and Eve sinned, man forfeited his right to rule and Satan took up the reins. And Satan, as the God of this age, the prince or ruler of this earth, he proliferates temptations just left and right. Because just as God's desire is that none would perish, Satan's desire is that all would perish. Though this is bad news for us who are trying to follow Jesus, there is a silver lining. Number one, this is a temporary reality. And number two, God has graciously revealed to us Satan's playbook. Imagine if you're in the Super Bowl. And you happen to come across your opponent's playbook. It doesn't guarantee victory, but it sure as heck does give you a competitive advantage. And that's what Jesus gives us, or God gives us through the Apostle John in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 16. He gives us a competitive advantage by revealing to us Satan's strategy. The Apostle John says the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see and pride in our achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father. These are from the world. So God lets us know Satan's going to hit you in one of three ways. He's going to tempt you and entice you and lure you into sin in one of three ways. It's either going to be through pleasure, through possessions, or through pride. I remember when I was in Bible college, my professor told me, Satan's going to be looking to get you with girls, with gold, and with glory. 
In other words, with pleasure, possessions, and pride. But friends, that's not just how he tries to trip up pastors going into ministry. This is how he tries to trip up every single one of us. This is how he tried to trip up Jesus himself when the devil tempted Jesus in the wilderness, which we studied back in Matthew chapter 4. So let's cover each of these three things, beginning with the lust of the flesh, a.k.a. pleasure. Friends, God created pleasure, and how many of you understand pleasure is not bad? It's a gift that God's given to us. Every time we smell a flower, as my little toddler has been doing so much lately, every time we listen uh, to lovely music, every time we taste some delicious food, and every time we feel the touch uh, of our spouse or of a loved one, that, that, that produces pleasure. And this is a gift given to us by God. But God has created boundaries in which pleasure can be enjoyed. And the boundaries were created for pleasure so that pleasure would do us good and never do us harm. But Satan's always going to come and say, yes, this thing, pleasure, I want you to indulge it in a way where it becomes dangerous for you, where it becomes harmful for you. I want you to enjoy this pleasure outside the boundaries and the parameters that God has established. And the danger of doing this, of course, is, is like this. If you have a fire in a fireplace, it produces warmth in the home and it's a good thing. But if you take that same fire and you put it in the living room, that's not such a good thing. One is healthy and does something good for you. One threatens your very life. So we want to resist Satan's enticements to enjoy pleasure outside of the boundaries God has established, which are found in his word. So he tries to use, number one, the lust of the flesh. But number two, to entice us to sin, Satan also tries to use the lust of the eyes, aka possessions. And he wants to use possessions to entice us into sin. Now, I believe I covered this last week, but I'll say it again. Uh, are, are possessions wrong to desire or to buy? Or is it wrong in and of itself? No, absolutely not. But friends, if the pursuit of those possessions and if the accumulation of those possessions becomes the driving force of our life over and above our, our driving force of our life being to love and serve God, then they become wrong. Another way that they become wrong is if we can only accumulate those possessions by robbing God. You say, how do we rob God? The Bible's clear. Malachi chapter 3, we rob him by denying him the tithes and the offerings that he desires to use to preach the gospel through the ministry of the local church. That is God's plan. Possessions aren't wrong, but if you only can drive the boat and enjoy it on the weekend because you've been stealing from God, possessions become wrong. Do you follow me? But Satan's always going to lure us to take possessions, something that in and itself is not wrong, and he's going to encourage us to enjoy it in a way that's outside the boundaries that God's created. That's the lust of the eyes. Possessions. Now, thirdly, Satan's also going to tempt us to indulge sin through what we'll call the pride of life, through what the Apostle John calls the pride of life. Now, before we came to faith in Jesus, we had all kinds of proud thoughts preventing us from making Jesus Savior and Lord. 
And the proud thought was, I'm not a sinner. I don't need a savior. That's nothing more than pride. Now, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, we eventually got to the place where we said, you know what? God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I'm not going to be proud. I'm going to admit that I am a sinner. I'm going to humble myself and admit I need a savior. And we accepted Jesus. And that's wonderful. But don't think for one second that just because we're saved, Satan now gives up and doesn't tempt us to be proudful anymore. That's just not how it works. When Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden, God had told Adam, who then told Eve, the day you eat of this fruit, you will die. Death will be ushered into the world and death will be the ultimate consequence of sin. But you know what? Satan came along. And he said, oh, that's what God said? Well, let me tell you what I think. I think the day you eat of this fruit is the day that you'll become wise like God. And in Eve's pride, whether she said this consciously or unconsciously, in her pride, Eve said, I know better than God. So I'm not going to go God's way. I'm going to go my own way. And friends, that's exactly what we do every time we sin. It's basically us, whether consciously or unconsciously, saying to God, I know better than you. So you said no, but I say yes. It's pride. And Satan's always going to use it to try to lure us into sin. And I bring this up, friends, because God has told us this is going to happen. He's revealed Satan's playbook, and that is so that we would not be unaware of the devil's schemes to trip us up into sin. It doesn't guarantee spiritual victory in every instance, but it sure as heck does give us a competitive advantage. So just like we might want to watch out for that fellow believer who might be enticing us into sin, we also want to watch out for the influences of Satan that he brings to us through this ungodly world in which we live, which is rapidly coming to a close. But friends, we're not there yet, so we have to be on guard. Okay, number three. The third way that we see in our text that believers can be led into sin is through the influence of our own sinful desires. So sometimes it's our fellow believer that trips us up. Sometimes it's our ungodly world that's led by Satan that trips us up. And then other times it's just because of the influence of our own sinful desires. The apostle James writes this in James chapter 1 verse 14. He says, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed. Read it out loud with me. By his own desire. And this is the great truth that Jesus is highlighting for us in verses 8 to 9. Take a look. Jesus says, And if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Here, Jesus assumes that each of us has sinful desires within that we will want to give expression to with the members of our body. So the idea is this, maybe you see something that you want to steal. So you use your feet to walk over to that object and then you use your hands to take it. Or maybe you see, uh, uh, guys, maybe you see a beautiful woman. Uh, Ladies, maybe you see a handsome man, okay? And you're tempted to lust. And you engage your eyes and your mind to give in to that sin. This is what Jesus is speaking of. We have these sinful desires within and we're going to be tempted to indulge them with the members of our body. 
Now, the reason we have these sinful desires within is because we all descend from sinners. Sinners named Adam and Eve. Just as children inherit the physical characteristics of their parents in many instances, so we have inherited the spiritual characteristics of Adam and Eve. Like them, we too are sinners. Now, bad news, good news. Bad news is that though our spirit's been redeemed, our body has not. Good news. One day, we will get a redeemed body that our redeemed spirit can live in forever. It's the good news. Bad news is that's not happening yet. So right now, we have a redeemed spirit that desires to say yes to God and no to sin, but unfortunately lives in a body that always wants to say yes to sin and no to God. And that's why in Galatians 5, we read about this waging war between our spirit and our flesh. We will always have within us evil desires that tempt us to give in to sin because our bodies have been irreparably corrupted by sin. So on this side of eternity, we'll always have something within us, within our body, that longs to indulge sin. So that third cause, it's because of the influence of our own sinful desires. So if you've been tracking with me, maybe you feel a little discouraged right now. Don't worry, that's kind of where I was before as I prepped this message. I'm like, good grief, how do we have any chance to follow Jesus in the way that we want to? Because we've got this threefold assault on us at all times. Sometimes it's our fellow believers luring us into sin. Uh, other times it's this, the influences of an ungodly world in which we live luring us into sin. And then when they're leaving me alone, I still have my own sinful desires luring me into sin. And we can just get very discouraged. Oh my goodness, like, oh, how in the world do we have any chance? Well, Jesus tells us in verses eight to nine. He says, if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better you for to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away because it's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Now, if you're new to church, understand Jesus here. He's speaking figuratively. Not literally. Put in layman's terms, here's what he's saying. You need to cut out of your life anything that causes you to be tempted, even if radical steps must be taken to eliminate the temptation. Friends, real quick, here's why it's so important for us to cut out of our lives the tempting influences that we have control over. I'll illustrate how important this is using the volcano illustration that I began with. We had the volcano, we had the baking soda, and we had the vinegar. Friends, the volcano represents you and me. The baking soda represents the sinful desires that are within us. And the vinegar represents temptation. As we wake up each day and we brush our teeth and we shower and we get ready for the day and we head off to, to school or to work or what have you, we got those sinful desires just lurking within. 
like the baking soda in the science experiment. These desires just lie dormant until they come in contact with the vinegar of temptation. And when the vinegar of temptation comes in contact with the sinful desires of baking soda, usually what happens is a sinful eruption. And that's why Jesus says, cut out the temptations. You don't want the vinegar of temptation touching the baking soda of sinful desires. Now, even when our sinful desires come in contact with temptation, Paul lets us know in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, that even then, we don't have to succumb to it. No one is tempted beyond what he can bear. God is awesome and he always provides a way out for us. So it's not like we have to give in, but can I be real? Most of the time, by the time our sinful desires come in contact with the, with the vinegar of temptation, it's game over for most of us. And Jesus knows this. And that's why he says, here's the key to victory. Cut out the temptations in the first place. You don't want the sinful desires within come in contact with the temptation. Because for most people, by that point, it's game over. And if Jesus is telling us to cut out the tempting influences in our life, you know what that tells us? It's possible to do. We get to choose what's around us, where we go, what we do, what we watch, what we read, the company we keep, the conversations we have, so on and so forth. And we have to choose to cut out that which would lead us astray from Jesus. Now, why is Jesus being so intense about this? Well, let's look again at verses 18 to 9, uh, verses 8 to 9, to see what's at stake. So look with me again. Matthew 18. 8 to 9. Jesus says, if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet, say it out loud with me, to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes, say it out loud with me, to be thrown into the hell of fire. So why is Jesus being so intense? Why is he talking about millstones being tied around necks and thrown into the depths of the sea? Why is he so serious about it? Gouge out your eye, chop off your arm, whatever leads you in it. Why is he being so intense? Because of what's at stake, which is our eternity. Sin threatens our eternity. So we better take Jesus's words seriously and apply the message today by cutting out the tempting influences in our lives that we have control over. We can't eliminate tempting influences completely, but we can minimize them and manage them by doing what we can to cut out that which we have control over. So here's the application question today. There's only one. It's very simple. What is the spirit of God who lives within you telling you right now in your spirit that you need to cut out of your life. And what will you do with what he's telling you to do? While you're thinking about that, let me pray for you. Father, I pray for the people of New Day. Like Simon, I know that Satan desires to sift them as wheat, meaning he desires to destroy their walk with Jesus. But God, I, I pray for the people of New Day, and I certainly include myself in this prayer. 
I pray for us what Jesus prayed for his original disciples in John 17. He prayed, Father, protect them from the evil one. And God, that's my prayer for us. Protect us from the evil one. He wants to deceive us into sin. And it always costs more than we're willing to pay. It always takes us further than we wanted to go. It always results in shame and regret. So God, I pray for us that you would help us. We have this sinful body. It's always inclined towards sin. We've got sinful desires within us. And then there's so many vinegars of temptation to cause our sinful desires to want to erupt. God, sometimes it just seems, how are we going to make it? But God, thank you that today you've told us the way. Cut it out of your life. God, the temptations that remain will trust you to be victorious over the temptations. But God, with the ones that are within our control, give us the wisdom, give us the courage to take drastic steps if they're needed and help us to understand it'll be totally worth it. We pray for your help and we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks, Mike. Hey, if you wouldn't mind uh, sticking with me just for a few more moments. Uh, this is such an important part of our service. Mike just preached an amazing message with a great reminder to all of us who are believers. But some of us here today might not be a believer. And if that's the case, I want to share with you why we need a reminder like this before you go today. And the reason is because we are all sinners and the wages of sin is death, physical and spiritual. But thanks be to God for providing a way of escape through Jesus. Though sin must be punished by death, God allowed Jesus on the cross to take that punishment for us so that we could go free and enter eternal life instead of having to suffer the penalty of sin, eternal death. And to accept Christ's death as a payment for our sins, all we need to do is ask him to forgive us of our sins and put our faith in him to do so. So if you want to put your faith in Jesus today, you can take out that welcome card that's in front of you. And if you check the box that says, I have decided to make Jesus my Lord and Savior and you take that out to guest services, if you're in person, we're going to be there to congratulate you, hand you a Bible, and get you going on this new journey. If you're online, there's a QR code coming up on the screen. There's a chat link online, and we will be happily uh, to ma uh, mail you that Bible. Thanks for experiencing this message with us. Do you want more New Day Church in your life? Well, please like and subscribe on YouTube and follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Want to take a next step in your faith? Our Church Center app is the best place to get more connected. So just download the free app on your app store today and be sure to choose New Day Church in Enfield, Connecticut. We are able to offer this sermon and all others like it only because of your faithful financial support. Thank you to all of you who so faithfully give each week. If you feel led to support our ministry financially, just go to our website at newdaychurch.cc forward slash give. Thank you in advance. May God richly bless you and we hope to see you again real soon.